Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about the Rushworth divorce. So this is the very end of Mansell Park. Fully, we're in the last chapter here, so... Spoiler alert, all the way around, (laughs) where we learn that Rushworth obtained a divorce from Mariah after she and Henry Crawford had an affair. It's real salacious stuff. (laughs) And Jane Austen actually gives us a pretty detailed explanation of kind of some of the details that go on in the divorce proceedings after this. So I'm going to be reading a passage where it talks about kind of some of the technical aspects of the divorce. So here we go. Mr. Rushworth had no difficulty in procuring a divorce. And so ended the marriage contracted under such circumstances as to make any better end the effect of good luck not to be reckoned on. She had despised him and loved another. And he had been very much aware that it was so. He was released from the engagement to be mortified and unhappy till some other pretty girl could attract him into matrimony again. And he might set forward on a second, and it is to be hoped, more prosperous trial of the state. If duped, to be duped at least with good humor and good luck while she must withdraw with infinitely stronger feelings to a retirement and reproach, which could allow no second spring of hope or character. So that's kind of the the, the paragraph that we're starting off with today. And we're really looking forward to kind of diving into this, the technical aspects of this, of this divorce that seems to be just kind of a offhanded comment. For today's episode, we are so excited to welcome our very first guest, Dr. Ellen Campbell to the show to help us walk through this topic. Dr. Ellen Campbell is a lecturer in the English department at Auburn University. She completed her doctoral work on marriage law and the novel, focusing particularly on trauma in marriage. She has explored Austen and other women authors of the 19th and 20th century in her continued work. She also has a forthcoming chapter in the edited collection, Me Too and Modernism from Clemson University Press. Hi, happy to be here. So glad to have you and so glad to have a chance to talk to you about this really kind of fascinating legal tangle that's kind of referenced here in Mansfield Park. To kind of set up the conversation today, let's just start like at the very beginning. So what does divorce look like in Regency England? Because I think I think that sometimes we have, the, the way that we view it today is kind of like, eh, we don't get along anymore. Let's get out of this. It happens. It's pretty easy to have it, have, you know, to, to dissolve the marriage. That's not at all what's happening in Regency England, right? No, divorce is extremely rare. Like it's so rare that only 276 Total divorces, right? It happened between 1765 and 1857, and I mean, marriage was really kind of an irrevocable vow or or bond, and so I think that that's a word that that gets used a lot by by writers at the time. This sort of that it is completely irrevocable, and so I think that's a good way to think about it. You know, we think sort of about marriage not it is serious, but as something that if it doesn't work out, life can go on in other ways. But that's not really what's happening, particularly for women. There were legal separations that were allowed, um, again, generally based on something that the, the wife did. Some reasons that that might happen is adultery, right? If a wife commits adultery, which is, of course, the case that we have in Mansfield Park. But generally, if the husband committed adultery alone and nothing else, then... That's no big deal, basically. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> the woman has no recourse, yeah. So in that figure you named, the the 276 divorces, I'm assuming that the majority of those are men bringing a suit against a wife for a charge like adultery? And that that's the only thing that they have to accuse their wives of, whereas, you know, for a woman to get a divorce from her husband, it's a whole lot more complex, right? 
Yeah, and and it really is something that until 1801, really, like that's not even completely a possibility. Yeah. So talk to us about like what what are the process like what's the process to getting a divorce in Regents of England? What's the process? So, you know, Zan, you just sort of mentioned like accusing the wife. Really what's happening is the husband is accusing the man that is committing adultery with his wife. And this kind of boils down right to this idea that like the woman in a marriage contract sort of gets erased in, like, legally and culturally based on coverture, right? Like she sort of loses her identity. She's subsumed into the husband. Can you define coverture just really briefly? Yeah. So coverture is basically just the doctrine that once a wife marries a husband, they are one person under law and that person is the husband. So that's what you mean by erasure is like literally she's not a legal entity anymore, right? Right. And not, not that she necessarily was, it's complicated before that either, but she's in some ways less of one. Your recent episode on Spencer, I think dovetails really well thinking about that. Because, yeah. you know, you guys talked about that last week. But so the process is sort of complicated. There is... First, the criminal trial, right? The suit against the wife's lover. And that does include sort of a hefty fine just to pay for that suit. So we're talking the people that can even get to the first step are going to have to have some some money to, to be able to get there. The wife couldn't attend that. So she's sort of like that much of a non-entity that she's, again, like not even really legally. She doesn't really have an illegal place really even in the uh, or the beginning of the trial. And that's the crim con trial, right? So that's the, the trial that takes place first. The other thing I should back up for a second is at this point, it's divorce is ecclesiastical. It's not civil. So it's not public, but rather ecclesiastical. The second step is once that trial, once it's proven that the wife and the lover did commit adultery, then he can ask for a legal separation from their bishop. And just real quick clarification, by ecclesiastical, you mean that it's through the church, right? Not through... Church of England. Like you said, it's not a civil. Yes, the civil divorce court doesn't open until the mid-19th century. So once you get that far, that's, that's like sort of one step is you can get the legal separation and you can kind of stop there. Or if you do eventually get there, then you can ask Parliament to pass a private act of divorce for you only um, that would reverse the marriage settlement and allow for you to remarry. So if Rushworth, for example, had only gotten a legal separation and he could never have remarried. He could never have continued his line, at least legitimately. And so that does kind of create some problems for the gentry um, and their, their sort of goals. And this personal act of parliament that you're talking about, I mean, like that has to get signed off like literally by the king. Like, so you're actually purchasing like the king's time and attention, not just like the courts. You're, you're getting, that's why it's so expensive, right? And I think like, with that too comes sort of a, a another class issue, because not only is it expensive, but you have to be sort of worth those high politicians time, right? To like, they're not going to do this for, you know, for somebody that doesn't really have a, a high social standing. You have to both be rich and you have to be in the cool kid crowd. Well, that's, and that's why it's kind of interesting, right? Because it's a Mr. Rushworth. He's not a titled gentleman. So like his money is really doing a lot of talking right now. <laughs> you know, I feel like everyone loves to joke on the internet about Darcy and his 10,000 pounds. And I get it. But Rushworth over here is sitting at 12,000 a year. So just imagine... Mrs. Bennett's eyes, just <laughs> dollar size. Yes. <laughs> it's true. And of course, Darcy's not titled either. And so I think that that is, is interesting to think about how just how much money Rushworth really does have. And, you know, we'll get to this later, but what Mariah is actually risking with her dalliance with Crawford. So Owen, tell us a little bit more about like the, the legal conversations around divorce. Like what's, what's the actual like 
the evidence and you referenced CrimCon earlier. Like, talk to us a little bit more about that kind of the legal conversations that are going on around that divorce at this time. There are some um, like divorce bills that are being sort of like flirted with um, in Parliament around this time. It was called the Auckland Bill, so it was put forward by a member of Parliament. His last name was Auckland, and his bill suggested that once divorce, if the divorce happened, that the party that committed the crime could not get married. So if that had passed, right, then Mariah and Crawford wouldn't have been able to get married. Yeah, I guess the conversations are are really sort of rooted in looking at this as sort of a criminal act, but almost always more from the, the wife's side. And and this is, of course, there are other legal conversations around marriage. There are other novels around this time and a little bit later that this is does come up that even sometimes it's written into a settlement that if a widow remarries, then she can lose some of the money and property that she has from her first marriage. Or it's even sometimes rewritten that she can't remarry. And so there's there can be a lot of legal language written to control sort of the actions right of of women right in this in these co- constructs right. Anybody who has read Middlemarch would definitely recognize that as <laughs> sure. as a device. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, and I was I was going to also say that there's you talk about that this is trying to make adultery essentially illegal for women, like it's an actual criminal offense for women. But men are like not even remotely held to the same standard, right? I mean, men can have all sorts of affairs. It's almost kind of like de rigueur to have like a mistress. Like nobody calls men out for this, but they're trying to, with these divorce bills that you're talking about, essentially trying to make women who commit adultery into criminals. Is that an accurate representation of what you're talking about there? I mean, I, I would say so. I think of course it's, it's complicated, but I think it, it also sort of has something to do with like at this time. And of course this is kind of what Austin is foundationally interested in is figuring out like the perfect balance, right. Between like emotional attachment and, financial security for for women that I think it is about sort of the emotional attachment that woman is supposed to have right so like the idea that she's supposed to feel sort of grateful that she is being saved right by this I'm being kind of silly here but being saved by this man who's offering her this great manor house and you know his access to part of his 12,000 pounds a year or whatever it is that that gratitude is supposed to turn into sort of emotional attachment and loyalty and all of these things. And when you think about even the passage that that Zan read earlier, like the line that she had despised him and loved another, like that's really her crime. It's, it isn't necessarily that she didn't love Rushworth. It's that she twisted that into face where it went towards, it did the opposite of what her job was to do in that sort of equation. I don't know if that made sense. It's really like she's getting a poor performance review. You know what I mean? This was a job description and you have failed. (laughs) Basically, I mean, yeah. <laughs> this was the list of bullet points in your job description. These are the things you were supposed to do. Like, keep the house, pop out some airs. I mean, it's sort of like the thing, right, that Charlotte with Mr. Collins, that she sort of, like, understands. And I think it's interesting that we have Rushworth and, and Mariah in this instance, because, like, one of the things that, like, I love Austin, but I've been sort of critical, right, is we never actually know how these marriages turn out. And, like, that's something that the Victorian novel does much more than than Austin does, but like Darcy and Elizabeth like may not actually make it. And that's not something that we want to think about, but, or they'll make it probably, but it might not be super great all the time. Did you hear that? That was the sound of a million hearts breaking. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, I know. And I, I, you know, I, I don't like to go there, you know, in my personal thoughts about Pride and Prejudice, but. 
Yeah, and you're so right, though. There's so few marriages that we actually see that are represented full stop in Austin. But then also the fact that there are so few that are actually happy marriages is also incredibly revealing. Yeah. You know, I think one of the few that we really get is the Crofts. They have a really solid marriage. But like, other than that, there's 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 very few. The Gardeners, I think, too, in Pride and Prejudice might be the other one. And in you know, Mansfield Park, like, it's also clear that Fanny's mother did not make a good choice by marrying purely based on emotional attachment. And so you have kind of these opposing sort of perspectives. Yeah, I think I think the line that they have for her is she married to disoblige. It's kind of like this side swipe at like, she chose love, but really, we're not we're not proud of this choice. <laughs> and it's depicted as as a poor choice, because she's not financially stable. Austin makes it clear that women have to eat like that's something that she's <laughs> she's very very into. So now let's 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 really dive back into uh, Mansfield Park a little bit more specifically. So Austin specifically says that there was no difficulty for Rushworth to get this divorce. What does that even mean? What does it mean that this was an easy thing for him to get? You know, we've already talked about the fact that he's fabulously wealthy, so the the money wasn't an issue. But why was this like a slam dunk, easy divorce for Rushworth? Well, I mean, partially because he, of course, has the means, which we've talked about, but also because I think that there's pretty clear evidence. The servants, right, notice that something is going on when they're in the, the house in London. And so having that clear evidence against Henry Crawford, so they have the criminal conversation trial, which has to sort of prove that these illicit acts took place. It doesn't seem that there's a lot of, there's much up for speculation there. So I think that's part of it. Let's actually read a portion of the text where Austin kind of gives us some of the details about how this kind of went down. So she has this section where she's kind of filling in the gaps. This is actually after Fanny has actually been brought to Mansfield and Edmund is kind of filling her in. And so she's, she's getting the story kind of put together. Mrs. Rushworth had gone for the Easter holidays to Twickenham with a family whom she had just grown intimate with. A family of lively, agreeable manners and probably of morals and discretion to suit for to their house Mr. Crawford had constant access at all times. Very soon after the Rushworths returned to Wimpole Street, Sir Thomas had received a letter from an old and most particular friend in London, who, hearing and witnessing a good deal to alarm him in that quarter, wrote to recommend Sir Thomas's coming to London himself and to use his influence with his daughter to put an end to the intimacies, which was already exposing her to unpleasant remarks and evidently making Mr. Rushworth uneasy. And it goes on, but it's basically like, everybody is kind of aware of what's going on. Like there's plenty of witnesses and then it just gets worse and worse. And Mrs. Rushworth is, you know, the dowager Mrs. Rushworth is actually not a fan of Mariah's and her maid is what's who's spreading the news. Like there's a lot of evidence stacked against Mariah. Yeah. And I think even the way that Austin sort of sets it up, right? Like, so Rushworth is with his mother in Bath and, her sister is now gone. So now it's just Mariah. Kind of the position that she's put herself in is in and of itself, perhaps not the smartest thing that she could have done. That, I think, on top of like the way that's plotted, on top of the fact that somebody that's good enough friends with Sir Thomas to say, like, hey, like you need to get your daughter in check here, knows that it's happening. That means that it isn't just, it isn't just rumors among maids, right, or servants. Not that that, should be taken lightly, but it's people that, and I hate to put it this way, but people that matter that are noticing like what's happening. And so I think that that, that Austin really does, does map it out perhaps even more overtly than, than we often think or that I initially even 
often think about this. Well, the fact that it ends up in the scandal sheets is just... Well, yes. <laughs> it's like, done deal at that point. Because that's how Fanny first hears about it, is it's in the news. And she's like, oh, crap. But then we also get that the, um, there's, a, there's a phrase in, this, it, that's in the passage just after it said, the servant of Mrs. Rushworth, the mother, had exposure in her power and supported by her mistress was not to be silenced. So we get this idea that like even like Mrs. Rushworth's maid is like holding press releases. Yeah. There's no putting that back in the box. Like everybody knows. Yeah. And so in the, you know, this is getting close to the time. Of course, it's more, more in the, the Victorian era, but where the newspaper is starting to really gain its sort of ground. Even thinking about something like Bridgerton, right, which is really popular now, which is, of course, not a newspaper, but it is a scandal sheet. And thinking about the way that that news in that show is sort of a good connection, I guess, for this. But it's true. I mean, like we did an episode on pamphlets where we talk about the fact, the idea that like the circulation of material and, and sex scandals are like ideal pamphlet material. <laughs> and we get, you know, with these scandal sheets, it's exactly what's going on. And so, again, it's once there's that much evidence stacked against Mariah, there's just... It is kind of a slam dunk case for Rushworth, right? Yeah, and it's so public. I mean, the fact that not even that the people that are in the higher circles that are trying to hush it up, but now that now that it is, of course, in the press, I think that even serves as a form of evidence, whether or not that would be true or not. I mean, I think we, we know in this case that it is true. So at this trial, would Rushworth have to be present? And would Henry Crawford also have to be present? Yes, yes. So they would both have to be there. So it really like and Mariah couldn't attend. So it really is a trial. The first step, the CrimCon trial, criminal conversation trial, is a, is against Henry. It's really not against Mariah, even though it sort of de facto is. But she she can't commit a crime on her own because she doesn't really have that autonomy. Right. She's just property. Yeah. Like, basically, Rushworth's property has been stolen from him, essentially. Yeah. Also, can we just say that criminal conversation as a like a euphemism for two people having an affair is really like the greatest thing ever. It really is. And and I love that they've abbreviated to CrimCon. So it's like this, like, it sounds cool and sexy. Right? I, mean, I guess it is kind of sexy. Like, oh, I just, you know, had a CrimCon the other day. And you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny too. They're in, I think it's maybe a little bit later, but in America, in the sensation sort of papers, there are these stories of like wives that murder their lovers or wives that murder their husbands. And this not this is like sort of sensation fiction mostly, but they sort of make a mockery of like, like they can't even really try the wife for murder because she can't commit murder because she's married and she can't do it, you know. So like that sounds like an amazing opportunity for fiction today, right? Like the the legal loophole that means like a woman can't actually murder her husband because she's just his property, you know. You can't yeah. convict <laughs> the staircase, you know. So why could she convict the wife? I think it's also interesting too that. Mariah, who is of pretty high standing, like that doesn't really count for anything here. Like even in these sort of trials, like it doesn't matter like who her parents are. It doesn't that doesn't really matter the same way that it matters for for Rushworth. And of course, I think the reason why adultery is, I mean, rightfully it's a hang up, you know, in a marriage. But like if, if that's happening, but I think part of the reason it's such a hang up in the Regency area, such a criminal or considered such a crime, is because like the whole point is to continue the line, right? And to continue somebody that can keep the gentry trucking forward. There are other 18th century texts. I'm thinking of Mariah Edgeworth's Belinda. There's a character in there whose name is Lady Delacour, and she is high society, wealthy. She is one of the women that mothers send their daughters sort of to her parties to meet, you know, the men. And then she, you know, in that novel, 
gets caught sort of committing adultery and she's older, like, you know, she's been married for several years. She's not elderly, but she's middle-aged and she loses sort of everything as well. And so I, it, this is something I think that the female writers I'm really concerned with and thinking about. And let's talk a little bit about like what happens to Mariah, because with all of the things that could have happened to Mariah, the fact that her father very clearly states, we will continue to support her financially. Like, that's the very best case scenario. Mariah actually lands on her feet in some ways. Whereas, you know, what, you know, what are the other consequences that could have happened to women at this time who, who get a divorce or caught in adultery? Well, I mean, I think we have an example of that in Sense and Sensibility, right, with Eliza, who sort of, right, descends into poverty and, and these kinds of things that if they don't have that support. There isn't really any, anywhere that they could go. And, it's not like they could even take on one of the few legitimate careers, right, for women, because nobody's going to want them to sew things for them if they have committed adultery. In some ways, it's interesting that that Sir Thomas sort of sort of does continue to support her, sort of in the face of society basically, you know, saying that you are like now forever ruined. You know, there are a number of I think terrible things. I think into in some ways that might even be like Austin being to maybe show a way that. I don't know, not a better outcome, but perhaps some compassion, like right for her character there. Because I think she's obviously putting some of this stuff out to be like, hey, this is not, this is not how this should be. Well, it's really interesting, like even the way that she describes it, right? She doesn't, she doesn't set it up that Mariah was like chasing after him or whatever. Like, I think there's ways that she could have written Mariah to make her like more unsympathetic. But the fact that it's really clear, she flat out says it in the text that the only reason that Henry started pursuing her is that he shows up in London, he's bored, and Mariah is really, she's she's like, no, thank you. You know, she gives him the cold shoulder, and he's not having it. He's like, um, excuse me, you are a woman, therefore, like, you will be in love with me, because it is <laughs> I, and I am amazing. And so, like, really starts to really heavily pursue her. I don't know, it seems, like, pretty clear to me, even from the text, that, that Austin feels like, you know, Henry is definitely getting off easier. And the language that she uses here, she says that punishment, the public punishment of disgrace. So what happens to Mariah should in a just measure attend his share of the offense is we know not one of the barriers which society gives to virtue. In this world, the penalty is less equal than could be wished. But without presuming to look forward to a juster appointment hereafter, we may fairly consider a man of sense like Henry Crawford to providing for himself no small portion of vexation and regret. And then she kind of goes on to say, like, basically his punishment is that he loses Fanny. But that first part, that language is pretty clear cut. It's like Mariah has to carry all this punishment of disgrace and Henry is just going to continue to live his best life. And that's not really okay. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. She's not pulling any punches saying, like, this is a double standard and it's way wrong. <laughs> I love that in that passage, the way that it's framed is in that free indirect discourse where it's the narrator has pulled out and is making the comment. It's not coming from Fanny. It's not coming from a character. It's the narrator saying like, hey, people, this is a problem. And so the way that that's being expressed is it punches at a higher weight, I think, than if it were to come from just a character's perspective, because then we could just be like, oh, that's the way Fanny feels about it. Or that's the way Sir Thomas feels about it. But this is this is Austin, right? In kind of the purest form that we have in her novels saying, I see the double standard and I'm, not, and I'm not okay with it. I'm sort of wondering too, if this has something to do with her, um, her high class and that she sort of thinks that that kind of attention from a man of Henry's sort of status, that if he's showing her that kind of attention, that must mean that he would like to marry her if she was not already married. And so I think that maybe she, 
it never really would have crossed her mind that he was just doing that to do that because of who she is and who he is. Yeah, he's he's just playing around and, and, and Mariah doesn't see it that way. There's this moment in Tess at the Dermavillas, which of course is way later in a completely different situation where Tess, you know, after she has been seduced and or assaulted, says to her mother, like, why didn't you tell me about this? Why didn't you tell me to watch out for this or to pay attention right to this kind of like emotional manipulation? And I think that that's something that, you know, throughout the course of the Regency era and the Victorian era, like women are told they're supposed to sort of fall in love, but they're not really equipped sort of to deal with the potential outcomes right for that. Well, I think that that's actually a really great transition into, I mean, because your research, Ellen, largely focuses on kind of the Victorian era onward. What are some of the kind of evolutions that we see happening within divorce law, marriage contract law over the next you know, century? So there are several laws that sort of are, are passed in the Victorian era. Um, but the sort of big moment is in 1857. And, you know, in and around that time is when the civil divorce court sort of opens for the first time, the public divorce court, um, where divorce becomes not only ecclesiastical and theoretically easier to procure, although it still isn't like they don't just give them to anybody that says I want them. And one of the stipulations sort of that changes has to do with with marital cruelty. So Lethal cruelty was a a way that sort of women could get the voluntary separation in the Regency period, but it is now something that can be used, right, to procure a divorce. But again, it has to be that plus something else. So that plus adultery, that plus bigamy. And so the Matrimonial Causes Act is sort of the act in 1857 that leads to this opening. And there were an astounding amount of women that came forward at this time and tried to sue for divorce based on marital cruelty, which often came, I think, with things like adultery and, and other things. Um, and this was only physical cruelty. It wasn't was it mental cruelty, even though there were a couple members of um, parliament that, that did try to get them to consider that as a possibility. And you still have to like to physically prove it. So it is still a very much a like, evidence-based issue. And this, of course, it takes place in a lot of fiction. Wilkie Collins, a sensation writer, right, come, comes out with a novel. It's published serially between 1858 and 1859, the exact time that this divorce court is opening. Um, and there's a scene there where the wife, her sister says, I need to physically see these marks on your arm so that I can testify. It turns out that even that power is not really even theirs in that in that tale. And that's the woman in white, right? The woman in white. Yeah. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. But the amount of women that came forward was astounding and really what a lot of prime not prime ministers, there's only one prime minister, what a lot of members of parliament started to say were things like, well, women are using marital cruelty and this like new open door for divorce. They're using it as an excuse to get out of a marriage they don't want to be in, which is of course calls you know into attention or the believability sort of of women. If you think even back to, to Mansfield Park and the Crim Cotton trials, the lover has to prove that it's not happening. The woman doesn't really get a voice. And then at this point, she also still doesn't get a voice. And most of the time, you know, the judge would just tell them to go home and work out their, their lover's fat. But that is a way that it's changing. There's also laws that have to do with custody that are starting to change. Because for the most part, at this time, the the child, right, it, if they, say Mariah and Rushworth had had a child and then gotten divorced, Rushworth would have had full control over whether or not Mariah even really got to spend time with that child. Um, so there, there is an act that sort of works to, to change that forward that too. And there's another novel in the 
the Trollope novel. Um, so, you know, it's a million pages and a million chapters. Paul <laughs> <laughs> T. Newey was right that, that deals with that too. Where, and that's about a, a husband who sort of convinces himself that his new wife is having an affair with her godfather, which is not remotely at all happening. And he like literally drives himself into insanity. And part of that is starting to keep the son away from from Emily and their marriage is much like Darcy and Elizabeth. Like it's, it starts off as this like ideal like love based sort of match. And then it quickly disintegrates into this, you know, insanity. I love Trollope, but I know that he's a, he's a little bit of a, he's an acquired taste. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the point is that this is something that the fiction sort of continues sort of to grapple with. And these laws are taking place that are supposed to on the face of things, make things better for for women, and I'm not saying that they don't completely, but they they don't seem to be making the steps forward that they're they're trying to do. It's very incremental. Yeah, let's kind of bring you back to like the Austen adaptations and other works that we see this in. So, um, I think I think that when we look at the 1999 adaptation, as you kind of mentioned already, Ellen, we see a little bit of a different framing of the divorce um, and and the proceedings there because we actually do on screen have. Mariah and Crawford caught in the act and Fanny and Edmund both are witnesses of this. And I think that probably the adaptation does that to make it, I mean, it could have been more subtle, obviously, but I think the way that they're doing that is they're making it so very tangible that they've been caught in the act. Many people know about it because Rushworth brings in someone from the press the next day. And so that's why it kind of explodes. And so the idea here being that in the adaptation, they're trying to really make it as tangible as possible that yes, there is a sex scandal, and yes, it gets out into the news right away, and that's why this whole situation explodes the way it does. I think that that's one of the only ways that you could adapt that in a way that is transmissible, right, to a, an audience in the late 1990s, who I think would probably understand that committing adultery is, you know, emotionally at least bad for, for a marriage, but the the interest of the press and the interest of sort of that bigger picture, which again is something that the, I guess the, the Victorians sort of take on even more, is something that I think that has to be adapted that way. Like you had mentioned earlier, we also have that mentioned in Sense and Sensibility with Eliza, where Colonel Brandon is, you know, telling this really sad story to Eleanor about what happened with his first love and how she had been divorced because she had committed adultery. Like the quote is, but can we wonder that with such a husband to provoke inconstancy, talking about his brother here, it's fine. You know, she, he's just like, by the way, my brother was the worst. And without a friend to advise or restrain her, for my father lived only a few months after their marriage and I was with my regiment in the East Indies, she should fall. So again, I think kind of like we were talking about earlier that Austin really does not come down that hard on Mariah. And she really kind of comes down hard on the fact that Crawford gets off so easily. And here we have you know, the hero, like a character we're obviously supposed to like and sympathize with, he is also very sympathetic to the quote unquote fallen woman and really calling out his brother, which I think is really interesting. You know, we have in, in these two two novels, these two examples where, and also it's pretty clear she also doesn't like Willoughby. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> Austin is just not about this treatment for the ladies. Which I think is, which I think is um, again, kind of a really wonderful thing for her to put in these novels in a way that like, again, you know, some people don't think that there's a lot of sex scandals or whatever in Austin that we've, we've got them and that Austin is not using them just as like, ooh, a plot point. They are used to kind of ground her opinions on like, can we please examine these double standards that are happening here? So the fact that she uses it twice, um, again, I don't think is, is incidental. I think it also points to, to this, you know, the critique right, that Austin's not writing about anything sort of political or real or anything. Like this is very much in the political and like social and cultural discourse and the fact that she's 
as openly, perhaps even radically, like openly critiquing it is something I think that is worth sort of noting. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about criminal conversation. Just <laughs> what a delightful phrase. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you, where they can find your work, all that good stuff? Well, you can find me on Twitter sometimes, and it's uh, my handle is just at Ellen Campbell. You can find my work most recently forthcoming in, as was already mentioned, the, the Me Too and Modernism, where I'll be talking about Virginia Woolf's first novel and marriage trauma. So um, that's my most recent stuff, and, and there'll hopefully be some stuff on Wilkie Collins coming out before too long. Ooh, exciting. Looking forward to it. Thank you again to Dr. Ellen Campbell for coming on today and helping us out with this discussion on the Rushworth divorce. You can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things and find us on our website, the thing And you can email us at the thing at gmail.com. And I know we say this every week, but we really do appreciate all the support. Always love hearing that you are sharing, telling a friend, carrying a sharing, you know, all that good stuff. <laughs> And we're actually going to be taking a one-week end-of-summer start-of-the-new-school-year break. So we'll be back to you on September 9th. And stay tuned for that episode where we'll be talking about Box Hill. Thanks for listening. Bye! Bye.